This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. So on the screen, if you're here, you can see the title, and it's called The Ethics of Missions. Not as epic of a title as I would want. This is a very epic theme, though, and I'm wrestling with how to articulate what this is, but I could have called it the ethic, ethics of America's existence in the first place. There is a, a if you could call it almost like a, uh, an attack at the very root system of our country's formation to start with. Like, we shouldn't even be a country. And the fact that we came over here and invaded this territory and took it for the European purpose, you know, that in and of itself is a criminal activity. We should just forsake it and maybe we should all leave. I mean, I don't know what the actual solution is, but it it leads to this blur, if I could call it that, where we're all supposed to be feeling guilty. Uh, And especially those with white skin, you must feel guilty for something. It's a very unique thing that we're walking through. It's a fog bank. And for us as the church, I don't care what color skin we have, For us as a church, this is a bait, and so it's a bait to lose track of what matters. What matters? Well, Paul is always going to help us fix our compass to the center of the center, the middle of the middle, or the north star, as I oftentimes will say, and that's Jesus and him crucified. The devil wants to beguile the saints of God to get us off track. So we may have the truth, but we don't function in the living version of it because we follow these rabbit trails ideologically off center. And right now we're in a classic season of needing to freshly rally back to a center. And so the ethics of missions, I know, again, not the most attractive title, but hopefully as I go you're like, you know, that's not a bad title. The appropriateness of missions. Is it right for Eric Ludi to train someone to go over into another country where their skin tone is a different tone and their message is a different message than what the quote-unquote indigenous message, that's a key word today, indigenous, and that would be that which is native to the country. Well, you know what would is, you could give a, a story for every country and say that the people there were not native, they came from over here and they came from over here, no, no one's truly native. And so we are arriving on the scene in such an hour as this, but we are being told that if you are not indigenous, you have no business saying anything. And so as a result, for missions to send someone into a foreign culture, that they would testify of a quote-unquote religion that is not native to that country, how incorrect is that? And so that's where I want to touch on this idea of the ethics of missions, because right now on the table, if we were to look at it on paper, missions is an inappropriate behavior for any of us to participate in. The Father's Day ask, so this is Father's Day, if any of you are listening to this in the future, those of us that are very present tense in in this room right now, we know it's Father's Day. There's a few fathers in here that, you know, just burst a a button on their shirt as I said it. They're feeling really good. Uh, Phil Apartment carried in one of his uh, kids uh, in just to get credit as, just just want you guys all to know I'm a father. And uh, so, bless you, all of you fathers out there. However, on Father's Day, I do this on, on birthdays too, that I feel like I have an extra position spiritually to ask God for something. You know, it's, it, I don't know that it matters what day it is, but like on my birthday, it's almost like God takes those things seriously, right? So it's like, Eric, what, what would you like? A special blessing on your birthday. And I always like to give my blessing away. It's just a, a strategy that I have. And I'd like to do the same with my Father's Day blessing, okay? I'd like to give it away. And you can take advantage of it too, very specifically, I'm going to ask God for something, and that is, God, build my children into missionaries. Now, 
That might sound very noble, but you need to recognize I am flying in the face of something I'm just about to bring out in and through this message, and I am deliberately doing that. This is what I believe is the highest calling my kids could have. Now, if you go back in time, in the church even, missions was the lowest place in the strata of ministry positions. If you were, couldn't accomplish anything else, then you could be the missionary. And so missions was not a highly esteemed role in the church of Jesus Christ. And we're talking, I mean, the George Mueller days when he told his dad that he was going to be a missionary, his dad nearly died. It was so extreme. And so he was highly educated. He was, I mean, to go into like ministry and to be a, of the clergy, I mean, that, that has esteem, that has some type of notoriety to it. But I mean, come on, a missionary. I desire my children, I don't care how it's viewed in the generation, I believe the highest use of a human life is as a missionary. Okay, now I'm showing my cards right from the very beginning. I'm basically saying, yes, this is where I come from. This is my mentality. This is actually how I'm hotwired. This is the reason I run Ellerslie Mission Society. I believe that when I am training someone to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ outward and to even potentially offend others that I am actually doing a good thing. And what if they die in doing it? And you could say, Eric, don't you feel bad about that? I mean, that's an interesting point. What I'm training people to do could harm them too. That's a, that's a fascinating statement, which is why the ethics of missions is a very important message. So I created a, a, a game and it was never, it never materialized. My kids are going to get mad at me even when they hear this. Uh, but I created a game quite a few years ago, what was that, like three or four years ago, called Unreached. And uh, it was a, a really neat game for, to sort of encompass their homeschooling. So it was like as they exercised certain things, as they did certain chores, as they finished certain projects academically, then they would get points in this game, okay? This game which was called Unreached. So my subtitle, a game that changes you and the world around you. Isn't that powerful? Some of you are going to like, I, I'm ready to buy it right now. Now, I'm going to, I wrote this little thing to it. I don't even know what to call it. It's sort of a practice thing like, okay, if I were to take this and if I were to enunciate this and share it with the world, what would it sound like? And so I'm going to read you something that is going to give away my mentality around missions, okay? But it's a unique flavoring that you will see because it's talking about a game. J.M. Barry wrote The Legend of Peter Pan for his children. A.A. Milne wrote Winnie the Pooh for his grandson. Similarly, Unreached was built for my own six children. However, unlike Barry and Barry's and Milne's work, this work was not designed to bring little children into adventures in faraway lands of fairies and talking bears, but into the dangers and trials inerrant in this very real world into which they are called by their creator to live with gusto and grace. Unreached was not designed with mass marketing in mind, and absolutely no effort was put into an attempt to make it either sellable or culturally sensitive to the modern system of political correct values. It simply is what it is. I'm guessing this fact will either cause you to really like it or really not like it. Since I'm commissioned by my Lord to be either hot or cold, I'm happy to have it this way and to be blazing white hot. You see, I'm of the old-fashioned order. I'm of the love well, live tough, die hard variety of Christian manhood, and it is my vision to train my children into men and women that alter the course of history. I don't aim small in my parenting, nor are my non-small goals of the Harvard variety that seeks to make impressive scholars out of my kids. Of course, I'm not against them being the smartest children on planet Earth, but I'm after bigger goals than that. I want them to be built into men and women who can carry impossible weights, bear unbearable burdens, stare danger in the face and laugh, and go anywhere in the world and alter whatever culture they enter into with the power and love of Jesus Christ. Long and short, I'm building my children into missionaries, ones that live every moment as if it were their last and gleefully anticipate their final breath as it will in fact be their first breath of heavenly air in the dear presence of their king. So, you're seeing a little behind-the-scenes stuff. Of course, the game was never finalized. The game was never made. The kids are now mad at me because they're like, what? Uh, but they'll show grace to me because this is Father's Day, right? So sometimes, you know, you need to articulate the grand vision, even though some, how you play it out, every one of us as fathers, sometimes our vision is bigger than we know how to carry out. But that's still my vision. I would echo that even today. This is what I desire. Whether or not I finish this game, it does not change the fact that I desire to build my kids into missionaries. 
1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And you're thinking, what does that have to do with anything? Remember, this is a spiritual biography of a nation. This is part five of something. And I'm going through how our nation was constructed, not because I'm fascinated just with American history, though I sort of am. Uh, It's actually because I want to take what was learned in the formation of a nation and understand how it affects us in the formation of a strong church that shines the light to the nations. You see, there's all sorts of problems in the beginnings of America. I get it. You could look at it with two different sets of glasses on. If you set on the glasses of saying everything's wrong with America, you can find all sorts of flaws in the American beginnings. You can. and I mean, I could help you find them. They're not that hard to find. However, if you say, God, how did you build this, this incredible environment where Christianity was able to foster and to send forth missionaries and helpers into all the world to serve, what happened? How did that happen? Well, that's another set of lenses, the one that I've chosen to wear. I, you could look at your parents the same way, okay? You could put on your, I want to find every flaw in my parents' glasses, and you could stick them on, and you will find all sorts of flaws in your parents, but this is Father's Day. You don't want to put those glasses on. Or you could put on the other ones to say, Lord, thank you for the rich heritage that you gave me. It, it, it may be imperfect, but for whatever reason, You were given something. You were given parents that loved you and gave their best to you. Cherish it. And so, depending on which lens you put on will define your attitude towards your heritage. So, I am decidedly in favor of seeing the providence of God in American history. I just am. And so, as a result, I could look at it as missionaries or conquistadors. I could look at the beginning of our, of our nation and I could emphasize the conquistadors and I could talk about how horrible they were or I could emphasize the missionaries that came over and laid down their life to reach what we know as the Native Americans. And which lens are you going to choose? I'm going to tell you who won. The missionaries won. The missionaries had the stronger message. They're the ones that are going to set the pace Does that mean that all evil and all bad stuff was removed from our nation? No. But there was something that began this any more than if I looked at your life as if it was a nation. There's a conquistador side and there's a missionary side at work. And which one is going to win? Well, I pray that the Spirit of God triumphs in your life and wins. And though you have a conquistador heritage, one that has some rather sketchy dimensions to it, if we were to look a little closer, and we were to get your biography out on the table and say, you can't hide anything. We would see that there's some sketchy dimensions to your past, and we might throw out your life as a whole. But God is a redemptive God. And he loves to take even what the enemy means for evil and turn it for good. So yes, there is evil. Yes, there is bad. But God providentially seemed to utilize the formations of this country in 1492 when Columbus was sailing the ocean blue. Now, let's go back in time here. 1492. We are being, Columbus is being sent out from Spain. Spain is a very Catholic stronghold, okay? They have just defeated the Moors. They're deporting their Jews. They are cleansing their society. I'm I'm just going to say it this way. They would call themselves Christian, but they weren't a healthy variety of it, okay? There's a lot of churches around the country today, but just because they're a church and they call themselves Christian does not mean it's a healthy variety of it. Gutenberg is just recently come out with his printing press. One of the reasons the church is so unhealthy is we are emerging from what's called the Dark Ages. And as a result, Gutenberg's press is going to actually lead to the propagation of the printed Bible. And when the Bible starts to get into the hands of people, you're going to see a change of mentality that is going to alter the course of history. The course of America is going to follow that. So the fact that we have these awkward dimensions of Spain sending out its conquistadors, for instance, is there. It is. But we're also going to see the light of God break forth like a morning dawn in the midst of this. And we're going to see an awakening to truth. And that is going to cause a tremendous impact upon the formation of this country. So yes, we could cluck our tongues at different aspects of it, but we also can see that God was taking, just like he does in our own lives, that which the enemy is trying to hold hostage 
And we will self-justify, self-justify. I'm doing good. I'm doing this wonderful work. Yes, but we're doing it all for self-gain. Columbus is an interesting study. I, did, I started with him last Sunday. And so that's what the twig with the roses message last Sunday was. But he's, he's right at the epicenter of the debate in our country right now. Now, I don't know what people are actually proposing, you know, with Topola, Columbus statues, spray paint it, uh, and then what do we do, forget Columbus? I mean, is, is it forgetting our past that helps us with the future, or is it understanding it better? And so as a result, yes, we have a checkered past as a country, but we could go and study world history, and you're going to find there's a whole bunch of checkered pasts all the way to the Garden of Eden. A little checkered there, oh Eve. What are you doing talking with a serpent? Look at every nation. We have checkered pasts that God will, if that people will humble themselves and pray and seek his face, they will remove evil from their midst. You will see God come in and heal that land. That's the gospel for nations and for individuals. So Columbus, like I said, he's a, he's a mixed bag. Columbus, I'm not a huge Columbus fan where I want to, and I said this last week, I don't want to train my kids to grow up to be like Christopher Columbus. At the same time, there's attributes of Christopher Columbus which are very impressive. And last week I talked about his dogged faith. This man has faith that puts us to shame. He believed that there was a new world out there. He believed that he, if he went in this direction, he would find it, and he is going to break all odds and find it. However, this man was a Christian. Now, he's a funny version of a Christian, but he was serious about Scripture. He was a very intellectual man. He was a high-level student, a high-level map maker. And so this is, this is the one Scripture that he feels was his Scripture. You know, a lot of great Christian leaders throughout the ages have felt like they have their own Scripture for their life. And you know, Leslie and I feel like we have a Scripture for our life. Well, Christopher Columbus, Christopher means light bearer. Isaiah 49, 1 and 6 were what he would quote often in his journal. Listen to me, O coastlands, and hearken you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name, which is Christopher, right? Light bearer. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Christopher Columbus, in his own mind, has a mission. And it's not to just discover a new land. It's not to find gold. It's to bring the light of Christ to the East Indies. He doesn't think it's America. He doesn't know about you know, this continent that we are on. He actually thinks he's going to finish going around the world and he's going to get to the other side of Asia. And no one has ever done that before. I mean, this is an extraordinary venture. So here's Christopher Columbus. This is excerpted from his writings. He says, it was the Lord who put into my mind, I could feel his hand upon me, the fact that it would be possible to sail from here to the Indies, which is, for all of you that don't know the full story, that's he's going to discover basically the United States of America. He's going to find the, the Bahamas uh, region, like Haiti and Dominican Republic. All who heard of my project rejected it with laughter, ridiculing me. There is no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because he comforted me with rays of marvelous inspiration from the Holy Scriptures. I am a most unworthy sinner, but I have cried out to the Lord for grace and mercy, and they have covered me completely. I have found the sweetest consolation since I made it my whole purpose to enjoy his marvelous presence. For the execution of the journey to the Indies, I did not make use of intelligence, mathematics, or maps. It is simply the fulfillment of what Isaiah had prophesied. No one should fear to undertake any task in the name of our Savior if it is just and if the intention is purely for his holy service. The working out of all things has been assigned to each person by our Lord, but it all happens according to his sovereign will, even though he gives advice. He lacks nothing that it is in the power of men to give him. Oh, what a gracious Lord who desires that people should perform for him those things for which he holds himself responsible. Day and night, moment by moment, everyone should express their devoted gratitude to him. Well, you know, that's impressive, right? So what we have is a, a man who is motivated, and we could say, well, maybe it's just in his own mind, right? Because we're going to look at some of the things he does, and we're like, eh. However, this man's motivation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
1492, this is an Eric poem. Last week you guys got familiar with some of my poems. They were really powerful. I, I don't know, no one emailed me this week and asked me for a copy of any of, my, any of my poetry from last week. I'm a little disturbed by that. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue to shine the light of truth, not just in Europe, but throughout the Indies too. See, isn't that nice? Uh, in other words, Columbus in 1492 was off on a gospel mission. He was a missionary. Many of us might not look at it that way, but that's how he looked at it. Okay, that's all I'm saying. That's how he looked at it, which makes it a little dicey for us when I bring up missions because like, are you talking like Columbus missions? Separating out the issues. So we have two different issues, and the enemy always likes to blur issues, okay? But we need to oftentimes know how to separate out issues. So for instance, there's a revisionist history of Columbus, uh, that wants to throw out all that Columbus said, all that he wrote in his journals, all of his motivation, and make it that he was like a conquistador. He wasn't. However, he does have issues. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to argue that. I would not want to be Christopher Columbus. I would not want to train people and say, okay, and here's the Columbus model. No, I wouldn't want that. So the revisionist history and the radical liberal ideology applied to the amazing discovery. That's just a truth and a lie matter. In other words, it's like, well, actually, that's not true. Here's what's true. Here's what happened. Now, imagine we were to separate out the truth, and he's no longer a conquistador. He's actually a missionary, okay? So we've at least established truth here. His motive was different than what you're giving him. No, his desire was to actually share the gospel, not to harm people. That wasn't his goal. However, he had a weakness, as did all of those in the age of discovery, and that's gold. I mean, this is the age where they're going to come back with legends of fountains of youth, too. Everyone is looking for this immortality. They're looking to be remembered through the ages. It's a huge weakness. It's a weakness that we have, too. In other words, how can we as Americans cluck our tongue and say that we don't have, we just don't call it gold, but we have materialistic bents, and we have a desire to be remembered after we're gone? Same problems that we have, Columbus is toting them around too. Now, his happened to be captured in history books. Ours just are private. And yet, he is going to make decisions for gold that are questionable, and I'm going to be the first one to bring that up and say that's uh, not the best idea there, Christopher, oh, light bearer. I, do, I think your light is going out, and quickly. So that's a truth-lie issue. But the second part the fact that Columbus was a missionary that was off. So he's a missionary, and some, someone could say, so this is what you mean by missionary? I say, no, 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 that's a flesh-spirit issue. He's not being led by the Spirit of God. I think he's justifying a lot of his behavior under the banner that he's doing it for Christ, okay? And a lot of Christians will do this. We have a lot of pastors that lead incorrectly under the banner of Christ. We have a lot of men that father their homes and they do it incorrectly under the banner of being the head of the home. And they sound so spiritual when they say it. But that doesn't mean that they're doing it the way Christ would have them do it. So the fact that we can use the vernacular and the titles and the nomenclature, right, does not mean that the actions and the attitudes are of Christ. That's what I'd say with Columbus. I'd say he's using the right terminology on the outside, but his content isn't very good. I, don't, I wouldn't want to come to the God of Christopher Columbus Unless Christopher Columbus, I mean, you actually see it. What, what, you have weapons for us? Okay, uh, we'll, we'll come to your religion if you give us those weapons. In other words, it's bad motivation for all of this. So there are two fields that are currently incorrect. Number one is the fields of the fatherless, and the second is the fields of the lost. We call it the mission field. And so we have two things that are being played against us. It's really interesting. In, in a world that is beginning to, beginning to, that is aborting babies, in a world that says, hey, we need to protect all of these that you know, have no rights, all of these underprivileged. And then I remember hearing about a guy who came up to a Black Lives Matter rally with uh, Black Babies Matter. And he, had a, he, was, he was holding up a sign that Black Babies Matter. And uh, I think he was done in pretty harshly. In other words, they didn't treat him well. Isn't that a fascinating statement? It's like, why is it that there are certain themes that will be vigorously defended, but then other ones that will be considered incorrect. We have some incorrect, and I just want you to see where it's landing. How we handle babies, how we handle uh, orphans is suddenly difficult territory for us as Christians. It's fallen into this politically incorrect region. And how we handle the lost around the world, again, this is a tension point. 
and it's doing its best to try and cage us as Christians so that we don't function the way we know to function. So during the week, and I was talking to all those of you in here before we started this, I'm going through World War II, and I'm dealing with, this week I'm dealing specifically with the German Christians and how they were conditioned not to help the Jews. I mean, they were conditioned not to help. If you help the Jews, you're dead. I mean, it's that simple. You're going to be treated like one of the Jews. And so as a result, it's a conditioning that takes place. We have lost souls and we have vulnerable children around this world, and yet we are being conned into thinking that we need to stay out. Okay, so that's why I'm dealing with the ethics of missions, even though I'm throwing in this thing about the fatherless in there, because it's actually the same thing. So I'm going to focus on the fields of the lost, and the issue is Christian missionaries in foreign lands. Okay, so the idea for many of us in here is totally normal. It's like, of course, that's just what Christians do. Christians go where there is no light, and they shine it. Yeah, I, I know that, but do you know how incorrect that is today? Because who are you to think that your American ideas are what they want? Who are you to think that your brand of religion is actually going to help them? All you're going to do is damage their culture. You're going to create consternation, and you're going to injure people. There's all sorts of terminology that is being thrown around here that would actually cause us, if we buy it, to think, why would I be a missionary? So the word of God on the subject, that's, that's always important, guys. So Jesus says, go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's Mark 16, 15. Let's look at the, the very first line. Go you into all the world. Okay, that's pretty expansive, don't you think? Now listen to the second part. And preach the gospel to every creature. Wow, that doesn't leave a lot out. So even though the world is saying, hey, you shouldn't touch this zone. This has nothing to do with you. Actually, it does have something to do with us because we heed the word of God. So I'm not gonna go through all these scriptures. I'm just going to put them on the screen uh, for you. But the command to go, shine light, bear witness, teach, preach, pronounce, and holy altar society is actually a very clear commission for us. Matthew 28, 16 through 19, for whatever reason, is at the top of both of the columns. Obviously, I'm wanting to emphasize that. That wasn't on purpose, but that's the Great Commission. Psalm 22, 27 through 28. Psalm 98, 2 through 3. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Isaiah 49, 6. Isaiah 52, 10. Isaiah 66, 18 through 19. Luke 24, 47 through 48. Acts 1, 8. Acts 13, 46 through 47. Acts 28, 28. Romans 10, 18. Colossians 1, 23 establishes a very clear mindset, which we could call a missions mindset, an outward mindset that God is changing us so that we could change the world. And it is a commission that we are receiving from the highest authority above all ever other authorities to actually go and do, to carry a light. Now there's different ways we could do it and there are ways, granted, that actually harm people instead of help them. And so I actually get it. You know, when we're talking about helping children, you could do all sorts of things in the name of helping children and actually harm children. And when we talk about reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can do all sorts of things in missions that harm people when you do it. The fact that that is out there is a flesh spirit issue. In other words, it depends on how you do this, which is why we as the church must function in agreement with the Holy Spirit. We must love as our chief motive and not desire to send just pictures home so that people are impressed with us and send us money. In other words, there's a motive issue that is very, very important in this process. So I'm going to introduce you to the hip trend amongst cool Christians today. There's this whole mentality. I remember sitting down with a missionary, and he was telling me about how this one mission organization is totally altering the way they think. They're no longer old school. Now they're thinking indigenous. Indigenous is the key word, and we have to reach these countries through the indigenous. Well, I, I actually understand. If you just were to bring that topic up, it's like, yeah, I agree. Let's raise up leaders in those countries, and they can change them. I get that, and I have no problem with it. However, this is indigenous to the point where they say, but you're not indigenous, so therefore, hey, why, why don't you move out of the way? You're not one of the, the right people for this job. So indigenous 
which means native, like you come from that place, right? This is your homeland. Indigenous is the current byword. Anyone who is not indigenous is a problem and should be removed from the equation. After all, Americans mess things up with their Americanism. We need to stay clear of foreign lands and let the locals do the best that they can do. We, of course, can visit these countries, see their plight, and provide secondary support, but we dare not involve ourselves too deeply in the work that should only be done by the locals. So if you study the, the history of missions, even uh, recently, you're going to see a, a movement more and more in, in, light, in, in, in this vein. There's wisdom in it. I'm not going to argue with every facet of it. There's actually some mind behind it that I can agree with. However, I want you to see where these things lead. Missionaries, you are not needed. Any doctrine that leads to non-activity is a dangerous one and I could name a few of those, that lead to a certain passivity, and my great grievance with the doctrine is where it leads you. Because Jesus' doctrine, if you take healthy doctrine, what does it lead to? Love. All true doctrine is gonna lead to the action of love. That's its fruit. And so you can test that doctrine by the fact that, well, look what comes out of it. It changes the life, turns it outward, and causes it to self-expend, to give life to others around it. Hey, that's a, that's a good, healthy Jesus doctrine right there. But when a doctrine causes us to think about ourselves and to hide in a closet and to only concern ourselves with making sure we are cared for, because, hey, we're serving the nations by not serving the nations, that doesn't make any sense. So I'm going to push on that. I don't care how politically incorrect I sound as I do it. Who's leading the discussion? So let's uh, allow God to lead the discussion first, okay? Because I think hearing him out probably makes a little more sense than hearing the culture out. When God leads the discussion and God's terms are utilized, listen to this. Now I'm using some God terms in here, and you'll recognize them. But listen to how God has described missions throughout the ages. As Christians, we go and we seek and save the lost. Christians break bonds, and we deliver the oppressed, and we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We invite the poor into our houses, and we clothe the naked, and we are unashamed to do this, and we happily receive the scorn and the shame and embrace the cross that will certainly be erected for us as, we as a result of our being sent in the authority and the power of the Spirit with the express purpose of demonstrating love and delivering the good news unto those at enmity with the living God. Okay, that's a very quick primer on missions. That's the entire mindset behind it. And we know that when we do it, it's never been politically correct. I don't know if you're looking for a time period where it's going to be politically correct and culturally correct and religiously correct to abandon all and to go and seek and save the lost. It never has fallen into any period of time as correct. The church has a tendency towards self-justification. So when one person in the church rises up and does extreme things for Jesus, everyone else doesn't like it. Because what does it say? It says that they should be doing it too. And so they have to justify, which is either self-justify or criminalize the person who's doing it. We have to be very guarded as, as the church for the truth of Jesus in this hour. So let's listen to what the enemy is using in his discussion, his terminology, okay? I want you to become familiar with it. Christians need to be sensitive, and so sensitive is in quotes, that's one of the, the key terms, to these other cultures and other religions. Well, do you think I'm, my, I'm gonna say the opposite? We need to be insensitive. No, see, terminology is a very dangerous thing because when it's used, it's sort of like, Pro-choice. Well, I'm not against you having the right to choose something. However, you don't have the right to murder. And so when you use choice to cover over murder, then suddenly you're going to get me to say, well, that choice is wrong. Okay, but choice itself isn't a problem. Pro-choice, I'm pro-choice too. Choose Jesus. I mean, I'm pro-choice if you get it in the right context, but I'm not pro-choice in the issue of abortion. And the same is true with sensitivity. I, I want you to be sensitive. If I were sending you out as a missionary, I would say be sensitive to those around you. Recognize you're not the center of this universe, that these people were trained different than you. They think differently than you. Love them by being sensitive. True. That, that's the truth. But being sensitive means something very different nowadays. Christians need to be sensitive to these other cultures and other religions. Their native beliefs 
are just as right as our Native American Christian brand of religion. We must not attempt to brainwash and indoctrinate these simple folk into our way of living, and we must understand the benefit of their cultural expressions of faith. American Christian missionaries have historically created more damage than positive value. They are attempting to export their personal spirituality into foreign lands instead of respecting and celebrating the different flavorings of indigenous belief unique to the many corners of the earth. Now, actually, that sounds totally reasonable. If we were to take God's word away from it, almost every one of us, if not 100% of us, would just fall hook, line, and sinker for this because it makes sense. It does. Why would we want to bully people into believing what we believe? I mean, that's indoctrinate them. Use strong words like that, and all of us back off. Like, oh, yeah, I don't believe in indoctrination. That's just terrible. You know what is in the word indoctrinate? Doctrine. Everyone is teaching a doctrine. Everyone. And so, you know what technically Christian parenting is? I know it sounds terrible. I know what it sounds like, but it is. It's an indoctrination, okay? I mean, I know what it sounds like because that's, the world has heightened our sensitivity to words like that. But we're training in doctrine, thoughts, how they reason, the principles by which they live. If you don't, they're going to still get a doctrine and they will still be indoctrinated by something. In other words, whoever is in a teacher position or in a parent position is the one that is creating an initial framework of thought. End conclusion, missionaries, just stay home. When social correctness overrules the word of God, missionaries stay home. Dying from neglect, liberal emerging Christianity applied to adoption. Now adoption for many of us is a very unique topic. Many of us in here have adopted. We've been very close to this topic and we understand the hazards of it. I could look out into this room and see a few faces and we would quickly nod to each other. This is a battleground, it is. To call it a field like a mission field is actually a very appropriate way of describing it. And so what I did actually quite a few years ago is I put together a list of key thoughts because what I realized is it was becoming increasingly more and more frowned upon, even in the Christian world, to take a child from a foreign country into your home. As if to say, how dare you? I can't believe you're actually thinking of doing this. And so as a result, it was important for me to exercise this since I have, what, a Korean and two Haitians in my home. Uh, it's like either I have done some terrible deed or actually this is part of how the kingdom of heaven works. Very unique thing to wrestle with. And so I want to walk you through my thoughts and you'll recognize this is the exact same line of thinking in regards to missions. Same thing, same argument. That's why I'm lumping them together. So there's a false premise today, and that is this. All parenting is equal. It sounds good, too, doesn't it? It just sounds very American to say that all parenting is equal. And how about all over the world? You know that there's different parenting models all over the world, and I'm just going to sound terrible and politically incorrect here for a second and say that that's not true. That there are bad versions of parenting, and there are good versions of parenting. There is parenting that brings death, abuse, disaster, and the rule of darkness over a child's life. And there's parenting that brings life, sets children free, and establishes truth in their inner man. Okay, to God, if I were to not just look at the culture, but I were to look beyond that up into the heavenly realms and recognize that God created all of us. He knows how to do things. And when you don't align yourself with God's way, there is something known as right and wrong. There is something known as good and evil. And so as a result, how do you discern the two? You have to start with the premise that it exists, that there is the right way of doing something in the wrong way. But who are we to think that we have the right way? Okay, so this is the weight of political persuasion that is hanging over us today. So here we are. I mean, it's not my ideas. They're God's ideas. I'm just saying this is what God says. So the lie that comes out with all parenting is equal is called universalism. I don't want to scare you off with a big term. But in a simple sense, it's like everything leads to heaven, okay? And no matter what you believe, you end up at heaven anyway. So everything ends up being equal if you look at it that way. Technically, there's no belief system that is better than another. There's no practice that is better than the other. If everyone's going to end up in heaven... There's just rougher roads to get there. 
And so as a result, if that person chooses a rougher road, that's their business. But we all end up in the same place. Mind your own business, Ludi. Stay out of their road to heaven. Okay, if they want to get to heaven that way, that's their business. Now that contradicts everything we know as Christians. However, to acknowledge that it contradicts that in our culture is bad to do. In other words, if you say that not all viewpoints are equal, you have issues. Because what, what are you, an elitist? What, you think your thought processes are higher than ours? I mean, these are sticky subjects. So the lie is universalism. All roads lead to the same place, heaven. There is no hell because there is really no right and no wrong. And therefore, there is no need for anyone to go there. All parenting choices, all religious practices, and all cultural, behavior, cultural behaviors are equal before God. Now, I was staring at Haiti at the time we were walking through this. And I was evaluating the Haitian culture and the American culture. Now, I'm not a huge fan of the American culture. Okay, I've lived in the American culture, but there's a lot of decadence in the American culture that I'm not going to promote, right? And so if I just take the cultures, yeah, they're both bad. However, when I look at the Haitian one, and I was seeing a, a very distinct thing, and that is, in a, in a sense, the celebration of the devil. Okay, it, it's a form of Satanism. It, it is. Uh, and so as a result, that's a voodoo. Uh, that's their national religion. This is going to lead to certain impact points and certain effects. Are all cultures equal? Are all of them rights in their own way? That's a very unique tension because if you believe they're all right, what's that going to lead to? No missions. Why would I try and change something unless it's not true? And the darkness that is binding this nation is so extreme that it has to have a solution. You guys know what that solution is? What has it been? $20 billion have been poured into Haiti over the past decades, and not one thing has changed. It's the average, I think it was like, if you were to play it out, it's like a million dollars being handed to every Haitian. And they have nothing. They're in a greater poverty now than they were before. It's not financial aid that's going to help them, guys. I can tell you what it is, but no one really wants to listen to it. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only thing that can break the powers of that darkness over that island is the power of Jesus Christ. So let me give you the truth to the notion that all parenting is equal. All ideas, homes, cultures, and parenting styles are not equal. All roads do not lead to heaven, and there is such a place as hell. A family where the mother spends every cent of the family's money on drugs, starving them, using the body of her children for ritual abuse, tormenting them, and exposing her innocent children to every devilish deviance is not the same as a healthy Christian family environment. So, yeah, I, I, I'm saying it, I'm blunt, but it's not. And so we can put our head in the sand and say that Chaz is just as healthy of a culture as anything else, but it's not. Anyone who wants to be honest knows that, that when you take law and order out of an environment, it might sound really good on the outside, like freedom, and yet it's going to lead to devastation in a greater darkness. False premise number two, first family, first culture, and first religion is to be protected at all costs. In other words, when you are born, let's use Haiti as an illustration. When you're born in Haiti, you have a first family, you have a first culture, and you have a first religion, and these are to be protected at all costs. It's like a weird worship of culture. And what's interesting is, as an American, it's like, see, you're trying to bring your brand of American Christianity. Actually, I have no interest in bringing America to any kid. I don't want to bring America to a kid. I want to bring Jesus to a kid. I just happen to be American. But they try and blend the two together. You see, what Haiti needs is not Americanism. I'm in agreement with that, but what they need is Jesus. And they need to be set free from a system that is crippling them. And it is unhealthy and it's built on lies and deceit and darkness. So when Christian families strip a child of their first habitat and first culture, they wound the child and distort the child. This is the, the lie. For a child was never meant to grow up outside its family, culture, and religion of origin. Okay, tension, because I think that a child born in a certain family should stay in that family for all practical purposes, but what if that child is abandoned? Well, then should you just stick the child back in the family? What if that parent is in prison? What if that parent is abusive? I mean, what, what do you do? These are the tensions that we that have stood up for orphans to say, hey, adoption is a reasonable means of answering that question have had to address. 
So there's a lie here, and I'm going to call it environmentalism. I know it's a strange term for it, but uh, it's the earth is first. First habitat is primary. Now, I want you to remember how Christianity works. What is Christianity all about? When I teach in basic discipleship, I'm going to say there are always two. And unless you repent of the first condition, your first habitat, being in Adam, you will die with Adam. So every single one of us has to recognize that our first condition is wrong. If you don't recognize that your first condition is wrong, you're sunk. Isn't that just an irony in light of this? Earth is first. First habitat is primary. The creature or the culture is of greater value than the creator. This is idolatry, where we actually are worshiping the creature over the creator. We're worshiping the creature's environment, their culture, what the culture of creatures can create higher than the creator who created us to enjoy his culture. He's actually the one that is meant to define our culture. He doesn't mind us being of different skin tones and different ethnicities. He loves it. He loves the variety and the diversity that is expressed in and through the DNA that he planted in Adam and Eve. It's all an expression of him, but it must become a second it must be rescued from a, a first situation and adopted into a second home. In other words, we must leave family and friends and homeland to come into the kingdom of heaven. This is actually what the gospel is based on. So let's give the truth to this one. Earthly heritage is not primary. Rather, the heavenly culture is primary. Being born again, having a second life, is the primary agenda of God for every person upon this earth. Our citizenship is not meant to be of this earth, but of heaven. When Christians raise children, they don't train them to be of an earthly culture. Uh, we could just stop right there. Are you training your children to be of an earthly culture? Would that be the worst form of parenting you could ever do? It's like, here, this is what our culture does. Let's celebrate this, because we're Americans. Let's do what Americans do. No, we do not do what Americans do. We do what Christians do. Could you imagine? Kids, we're starting a new thing in America now. It's a, it's a really fun-sounding thing. Let's create our own autonomous zone. Maybe you create it in our own home. And so you create the living room and wall it off with guns so that mom and dad can't come in and discipline you. What a wonderful idea. You will grow up to be strong and healthy and whole. Bad idea. In other words, I don't want to train my children to be like the world around them. I want them to be other than the world around them. Yes, I'm in America, and yes, I love being American. I love our country. I have a deep affection for our country, but it's subsidiary to my affection for the kingdom of heaven. And if God leads my family somewhere else into another country, I'll love that country, and I'll love the people of that country, but I will not train my children to become like that country except to the degree that it will enable them to effectively reach it. My children are Christians, not Americans, which is a really good statement in my family since I have all sorts of ethnicity in my own home. I'm not training my children to be like America, but to be like Christ. There's a distinction there. So when Christians raise children, they don't train them to be of an earthly culture, but of a heavenly one. Christians who happen to live in America don't raise American children, but Christian children. Christ so this is the false premise number three. These children must not be born again. So when you are engaging in another cult culture, this is where the missionary uh, overlap is going to come. To come into a culture and to presume that your belief system is correct, and then to force it, as they would say, upon a child to have them yield their life to Jesus and awaken to the gospel is a crime. You know, in China, if you were to lead a child to Christ, it is a criminal act. So they can say that they have freedom for the church of Jesus Christ in China. They don't, because the most fundamental function of the church, which is evangelism and love of others, they cannot even evangelize their own children. And so as a result, you see the tension there. Reaching children and actually bringing them to the gospel of Jesus Christ is a crime to many people because you are now exporting your belief system and pushing it, forcing it upon a child. What is happening in our country right now? That's exactly what they're doing in the public school system. 
they are exporting a doctrine and training up a culture to think a certain way. And yet if a Christian does it, that's, that's a heinous crime. You see, this is a battle, and it is a spiritual one. We need to recognize our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against the spiritual powers that are involved in this. But we need to be wise as Christians. Christians are over, here's the lie. Christians are overriding that which is native to these little children. These children's families, culture, and religion is what was intended for them. How dare these Christians seek to strip a child of this first environment in order to bring them into a new and different one. So I'm going to call that the lie is worldliness. And that is the first birth must never be violated. That which is native must be protected, guarded, and celebrated. It's worldliness. This is where we are, and I'm going to enjoy the world to its fullest measure. And so what, if anyone tries to prohibit that, they are standing against my rights and my freedom. It's a twist of the entire purpose we're here on earth. We're here to delight in the, in the one who created us and to find our satisfaction in him and not in this earth. But when you put a guard up around every child and say, don't invade that child's life and set them free from the decadence of this earth to be set free to know the king and their original purpose, we have a higher commission, the ethics of missions. We actually, in good conscience, can come into a culture and violate their first condition. Oh, could you imagine? This is how we as Christians think. Oh, wait a minute. Did I... Did I have, yeah, I did. Sorry, guys. All right, the truth. Our first birth is of this earth, earthy. It is of the flesh, and we are controlled by the power of sin. Our first father is the devil. Our first culture is that of darkness. And our first religion is self-worship. You tell me, should that be violated? If that's not violated, we're sunk. Jesus stipulates that we must have a second birth, and we must be transferred from the kingdom of darkness and unto his kingdom of light, Christians shouldn't hesitate to lovingly admonish everyone on earth, whether they be Haitian, Chinese, Sudanese, Swedish, or American, to repent from this first birth, to repent from this first birth and be born anew. The idea of adoption and transfer from the culture and religion of one nation under the culture and religion of another is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the context of the gospel, this transfer is not something that damages a person, but something that in fact heals, regenerates, and wholly rescues a person. Strange fact, God doesn't mind disturbing the first. I just want you to let that settle in. God doesn't mind disturbing the first. This is what missions is based around. You see, God is like, go, go talk to them. But God, I would have to disturb where they're at. They're at peace right now. Well, technically, they're probably not. But if I give them the truth of the gospel, it's going to stir them up. It's going to get them thinking. They're going to have to go through a, you know, a, a, black, a dark night of the soul. Mm-hmm. It's because I love them. You see, Jesus is going to, well, the word of God is going to give us the law in the Old Testament. It is a law that is meant to awaken us and to stir us to our reality of need. That our first condition is faulty. That's what sin is being exposed in and through this law. It's a gift to us. Now, it can't save us, but it's going to lead us to the one that can save us. God doesn't mind us being disturbed. He disturbs us so that he can save us. Deuteronomy 32, 11 through 13, as an eagle stirs up her nest, flutters over her young, spreads abroad her wings, takes them, bears them on her wings, So the Lord alone did lead Jacob, speaking of Jacob, and there was no strange God with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth. So the people of God are going to be cared for the way an eagle cares for an eaglet. Now, I don't know how many of you uh, have ever heard me talk about the eagle and the eaglet. It's a fascinating thing. I've actually never studied it in some wildlife sense where I spend time with an eagle. This is just passed down to me, and it it could have some errors, but it's a cool, cool story. But a mother eagle at a certain point in time is going to disturb the first nest of the eagle. And it's very much on purpose because the mother eagle loves the eaglet. However, what looks like, uh, what, what is love does not look like love, if I could say it that way. So the eagle, eaglet has this mansion-like nest. It's just this huge nest. And mother eagle one day is just going to sort of go berserk lose a few screws, as far as baby eaglet is concerned, and it's going to start hovering 
over the nest and create this great wind thrust down upon baby eagle. Well, before he's going to actually stir up the nest and take all those like soft, fluffy, uh, downy sides of the feathers and turn them up so now the pinions are sticking up and baby eaglet cannot seem to get comfortable. And then, he, then she's going to flutter over the nest or hover over the nest, which is like, you know, a hummingbird to hang out in one spot is one thing, but for an eagle, you could just imagine how much wind pressure is coming upon little baby eaglet. And guess what little baby eaglet is stuck on? Little pricklies. So baby eaglet is like, mama, what happened to you? And this is oftentimes our same mentality towards the stirring up of the nest or to the hovering. We don't want to disturb first condition. This is incorrect. Yeah, if that's all you knew, I can understand why you would conclude that it's incorrect. However, God is doing this so that he can prove our rescuer. So then Mother Eagle, if she hasn't gone crazy enough in Baby Eaglet's mind, is going to knock Baby Eaglet out of the nest. Now let me, I, I need to fill in some, some gaps here. There is something that is happening when Mother Eagle is hovering that is very profound in my mind. I mean, profound. And that is Baby Eaglet is trying to survive and so she, a little baby eagle, I don't know if boy or girl, but is resisting this downward wind pressure. And as a result, it's going to strengthen a muscle in baby eaglet's wings that will enable it to fly. And it's going to release some kind of lubricant out from under baby eaglet's you know, wings that is going to actually enable the, the feathers to be fly ready. And so as a result, it's essential that mother eagle stirs up the nest. And it's essential for baby eaglet to have her nest stirred. Otherwise, baby eaglet could never progress to become what baby eaglet was meant to be. And so then mother eagle is going to knock baby eaglet out of the nest. And these are high nests, right? So baby eagle is like <sighs> falling down to the ground is going, yeah, I guess it's my time. And mother eagle is going to swoop down and catch baby eaglet and take it back up to the nest. And then Mother Eagle will knock Baby Eaglet out of the nest again. Baby Eaglet will fall down and Mother Eagle swoops down, picks up Baby Eaglet and puts uh, Baby Eaglet back in the nest. Keeps doing this until Baby Eaglet at some point goes, you know what? I have these things, these wings. Mama seems to be using them and begins to try and fly. And pretty soon Baby Eaglet begins to fly. And this is the training. How do you go from nest to flight? You see, if a storm comes, a nest is vulnerable, but an eagle has strength in its wings to actually fly above storms. And so as a result, God knows what we were created for. And the only way to get us into that condition, to prepare us to fly as we ought to fly, is that there is a nest stirring that is necessary. It is not bad to mess with the first nest. It's just that it has to be done God's way. God has a heart for baby eaglet. I, I, again, I can't prove this. You know, this is like, it could be one of those great stories that helps when a, a pastor's you know, sharing his story to finish with a great line like this. I don't know. I can't prove it, but it's a good line, I have to admit. And that is that never in earth's history has a baby eaglet been found dead on the ground. Like I said, that I, don't, I can't prove that. It's sort of like you die when you, if, if you die in your dreams, you die. It's like, who can prove that? That's a ridiculous statement, right? Because I did die in one of my dreams and I'm still alive, right? So uh, the idea is God cares for us even though it appears that he is stirring up our nest. It's all because he wants to save us. Our motive is love, guys. It's not gold. It's not grand fame. Columbus got snagged by a few of those things. But we are after the lost, and we have a commission from on high to actually seek and save that which is lost, to go into all the world and make disciples. We are to reach every creature with the gospel. This is a command that is coming not from our culture. Our culture will not tell us to do this. Our God has told us to do this. And when we do it, it will be incorrect in the eyes of this world. We will be stirring up first nests. And it will not look good any more than it looks good to baby eaglet to have baby eaglet's nest stirred up. And you could just imagine all the other eaglets hopping on mother eagle and trying to beat mother eagle into subjection. It's like, how dare you stir up the nest of one of our fellows? 
This is terrible. It may look a certain way to the world, and yet it's an action of love and care. God is a nest stirrer. Fact. Strange fact. God commands us to be nest stirrers too. He has called us to go into this world and stir up nests, to awaken people from their slumber, to speak things that will cause people to question their first estate and if they should stay in it, and to beckon them to leave their home, their first nest, and to come fly. You see, this is a commission that we have received and we must take it seriously. We live in an hour where it is being more and more obscured to us. But I want to rise up with a fresh vision to be Christians in this hour. Father, please, this must be a work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we need you to build us into men and women of God. Men and women that recognize the significance and the importance of your voice, of your word in this hour. Maybe we'll be shaped by your thinking and not by the thinking of the correct. Lord Jesus, we take our cues and our commands from you. Please build us for such an hour as this. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.